0: This week on It Starts With Attraction. I love talking about emotions, but there are many people out there who are not so keen on it. No matter where you fall on that spectrum, today's episode is going to be very enlightening. We talk about so many things, emotions, how to set boundaries, what boundaries really are, trauma, the three ways that people typically deal with trauma, anger, jealousy, anxiety. It's its its really good. And I'm joined today by Carla McLaren. Carla is an acclaimed author and an expert on emotions. She's renowned for her groundbreaking book, which is coming out this month of June, 2023, The Language of Emotions. Actually, this is a redo, I believe. It's a revised and updated of, a, of the book that has already been around. And so we talk about this book. We talk about the way that she has worked with people And it is absolutely a great conversation. I loved it so much. Let's dive in. There's a process to falling in love and it starts with attraction. Join Kimberly beam Holmes and her special guests as they discuss how to become the most attractive you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as we refer to it, working on your pies we will teach you how to have better relationships and become more attractive to others. And maybe more importantly to yourself, it starts with attraction and it starts now. excited to be speaking with you today and to talk about this new book that you' having out that you have coming out the language of emotions thank you so much for joining me Thank You Kim really I'm glad to be here yeah well one of the first questions I want to ask you is what led you to want to write a, a book a, a super in-depth book that's all about emotions
1: <laughs> I would say because no one else ever has <laughs> um, and uh, I was, um, I'm a very sort of hyper sensitive person and very aware mm-hmm. of emotions. And this mm-hmm. was true when I was little and I, there was no information for me on what emotions were or why people had them or why they, many of them were so terrible and some were great. You know, it was like, I, I was really on my own. There was no formal teaching about emotions and there still isn't. Um, So that's what the language of emotions is about. It's about one person saying, there's got to be a way to understand these.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You are pretty open, especially in the beginning of your book about your hypersensitivity to emotions and and some of the things in your life that led to that happening. And actually the beginning of your, I, I wouldn't say the beginning, it's probably third, a third of the way in, you start talking about the role of trauma and how that plays into emotions. Will you tell us a little bit about, that's a big question. Yeah. Will you tell us a little bit about how emotions impact trauma and trauma impacts emotions? I mean, but really like that that was an interesting thing to me for you to start with in a book about emotions.
1: Yeah. Well, what I noticed is that, what I finally realized over many decades of study is that emotions come forward to help us deal with whatever's going on. And if whatever is going on is intense, Hmm. then the emotions are going to need to kind of rush forward and do that. But most people look at it exactly backward and they think that whenever there's trouble going on, there's always those damned emotions here. So their idea is we need to get rid of emotions because there wouldn't be any pain without emotions. And for me it's like, no, 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 no. The pain was there. The emotions didn't bring it. They're coming to help you. And this mm-hmm. is especially true when you've experienced trauma and you haven't been able to downregulate from it and it sort of chases you. And, you know, and we call it post-traumatic stress disorder, but I would call it just post-traumatic thing because a lot of times your organism is trying to upload information about how you survived that thing that happened. And mm-hmm. so it might want to bring you back to it and say, okay, what was your decision here? What did you do? Because I need to upload this information for the future. Right. Um uh, sort of like if you if you go up to something that's very novel you're going to be afraid of it at first, you're going to be clumsy, you're going to be a mess. And then over time, you're going to understand how to do it. It's the same with trauma, your whole sort of survival mechanism wants to know, if this ever happens again, what do we do? And a lot of people confuse that. So the emotion of panic comes up and says, Hey, look at this. And you're like, No, I don't ever want to look at that. I was like, but you survived, you're a survival expert. So, Mm -hmm. so I think that's something that if you've had any sort of unresolved trauma in your life, your emotions may be pretty intense because Mm -hmm. they want you to upload that survival information and move on. So I think a lot Mm -hmm. of people, um, they experience emotions as a problem.
0: Let me ask you this question. And this is something I ask pretty much everyone who comes on who begins, who, who talks about trauma, how do you define trauma and how would someone know if they had unresolved trauma in their life that needed to be dealt with?
1: I, I would talk about potentially traumatizing situations because not everybody is traumatized by the same thing right mm-hmm. so you wouldn't say okay this was a trauma like a trauma was a noun rather it's our engagement with what's happening so i would say it's whatever overwhelms your capacity to engage um and that can be anything for some people trauma is dental work right for some people being hit in their house is normal it's not a trauma right mm-hmm. they just get used to it. But for some people, seeing a car crash is trauma, while the people who were in the car crash didn't actually get traumatized, because they were, you know, they were just dealing with it. So it's anything that overwhelms your specific organism. And the way to know that that the trauma is not resolved, is if you keep thinking about it sort of obsessively or feeling into it, or you're avoiding anything that's, I'm never going to the dentist again, that's not going to be good for you know, that's not a good life decision, right? So it's if you, you cannot find your resilience because, you know, we are a very resilient species. We were built to heal. And Mm -hmm. so it is, people can heal from any kind of trauma, no matter how hard or how long it goes on, people can heal from it. They can become resilient. So you will know if you have not regained your resilience around something.
0: How does that differ from someone who maybe has a phobia or or high anxiety that is debilitating? So how might that be different than, or is it? Do, does it have overlap to a trauma?
1: I think phobias are more of a of a neurological um, um, event rather than. I mean, you can develop a phobia about. Uh, specific things based on, I don't like that thing. For instance, um, I didn't really know how to cook fish when I was younger and I would I'll oftentimes get the wrong fish and I would have f- food poisoning. So for about 10 years, I couldn't go anywhere near fish. <laughs> I was like, and it wasn't a phobia as much as yeah, fish are bad. <laughs> so I finally learned how to deal with that. Right. But there's certain things where, you know, your whole organism's like, yeah, we don't want fish. Fish is not good. We've, you know, we've done the the data collection. Fish is not good, right? But sometimes like a phobia of um, uh, spiders or something, right? Just uh, having really intense reactions. It could just be something's gone on with you. And generally, the cognitive behavioral therapy does help with that, where you just learn Mm -hmm. to sort of retrain your your mind it's like it's a spider it's just over there doing its spider thing right it's not it's not coming for me right so it's sort of like retraining retraining yourself
0: yeah 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 when i was one of the reasons i asked this question is when i was young probably first second but definitely third grade i had a phobia of thunderstorms and and tornadoes and the And I don't, I can't really tell you where it came from, but there was something that happened around six or seven years old. Well, it was when my mom, my mom's mom died and I saw the depression and grief that my mom went through and I began to relate that to losing my parents. And so I began to be super anxious and scared Mm -hmm. about anything that might kill them or separate me from them. And so when there was a tornado watch at school, for example, like in third grade, I would like went into a panic attack, had to be with my parents because the thought of not being with them and something happening yeah. was too much for me to bear. And so that's why that's kind of one of the scenarios I was thinking of in, is it a trauma that was unresolved, like watching my mom go through that depression and through that grief process that led to the anxiety, the the, super, the incredibly heightened anxiety around that, yeah. um, And could that be, could that have been, I mean, of course now it's resolved, but could have that been resolved if I had gone down a road then of dealing with that?
1: I think so, because, I mean, you can look back at it now and see that you had made some inferences, Mm -hmm. right? Grandma dies, Mm -hmm. mom can't, you know, mom is desolated by it. If Mm -hmm. mom dies... Right. So, you you know, you saw that there was trouble and you were trying to protect yourself. Right. Yeah. It's just you were little and right. your inferences were not, you know, they were not fully mature. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think I think had you worked on it, then a sensitive person could have helped you. You know, a sensitive therapist or something could have helped you understand what that phobia was standing in for. Sure yeah trying to control the world as a child
0: yeah, yeah right yeah. you you also talk in your book that there's two responses to trauma but then there's a third response that is probably the healthier one but that isn't really talked about so what what are those three three responses that people could have to trauma with the two most common ones that you typically see
1: one is repressing it or trying to forget it or trying to avoid it or trying right and that doesn't work because if the trauma is unresolved you need to resolve it you need to figure it out so if you're repressing it you're going to be using a tremendous amount of energy to not what not feel not be not live so you're not really going to be available in the world or to your relationships right you're, you're not going to be a relationship partner your relationship is with repressing. <laughs> That's your relationship. Um, the other one is to express your trauma everywhere, just to kind of explode everywhere. And and I think we've all got people like that in our lives, who um, who just bring the pain wherever they go, and everything triggers them, and everything. You know, it's it's they're living it out, but not in a very skilled way. And we go through that. We all go through that where we're just very unconscious and just acting out. Um, the third path, I call it the middle path is to, um, listen to your emotions and move into the trauma. Um, when you feel safe enough, you may need the help of a counselor or someone who's supportive in your life, but to turn toward it with your skills intact and figure out what what is trying what is trying to be healed here rather than I refuse to look at it or I'm you know I'm a, I'm a living statue to it right everybody must make obeisances to my trauma and um, uh, I like that middle path better because it goes somewhere good whereas the other two they tend to keep you trapped
0: yeah. Yeah. You speak in the book about how emotions will play out or are likely to play out when someone does try and take that middle path to resolve their trauma and work through it. What are the emotions that, t- that people will typically encounter and how do those emotions help them or hinder them as they're trying to work through resolving trauma?
1: There's some really p- powerful ones. And the first is panic. Panic's job is to keep us alive. So it has the four basic responses of fight, flee, freeze, and flock to safety. Um, for many people feeling panic, this is where the kind of PTS disorder D comes from. The panic can sort of bring us back to the, the sensations we were having at the time that this thing happened, right? And that can just be scary because it was scary right? That can feel just really bad. And so if people don't understand that, that's the time they may run. Yeah. But if um, uh, I have like questions to ask panic, and one is, am I in danger right now? Because that's panic's job. If I'm not in danger right now, there's another question I have, which is what's been frozen in time? What 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 are you trying to tell me? Right. So this is me having a relationship with these emotions rather than me being pushed around the world Mm -hmm. by emotions I don't understand and can't even talk to. Um, Another emotion that may come up is shame. Because there's always this idea, you know, we see it in um, people's responses to women being sexually assaulted. What were you wearing? Mm -hmm. Why were you out at night? Right. Mm -hmm. So we like to blame victims because it gives us the sense that we somehow have control. Right. Well, if I would never go out wearing that and I would never go out at night without a whistle, do you know what I mean? Like we, we like to, to find out how victims made it happen. So a lot of times those of us who were victimized feel shame Mm -hmm. for having somehow made it happen through our inattention, whatever it was that happened, right? So, and shame is also can be a very difficult emotion to deal with, because it tells you when you've done something wrong. Who wants to hear that? Nobody wants to hear that. We also, we always want to hear you, you're the best. Um, So working with shame and its job um, is to hold us to the ethics and values that we've agreed to. For many of us, we've agreed to ethics and values that are actually pretty toxic, and that's not shame's fault. So the work with shame is to go through and make sure that every ethic and value that we have that we can be aware of is what we've chosen today, not something that we got from media or an unhealthy grandparent or something like that. Yeah. Mm. yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of like social things that happen to our emotions and a lot of this i would say uns, insensitive people who come up to us after a trauma and say why didn't you hit back mm. <laughs> because i didn't
0: <laughs> because i'm alive because i didn't yeah yeah you also speak in the book about Anger being a cue for boundaries. So I really like the way, actually backing up a little bit, mm-hmm. I really like the way you said about having a relationship with your emotions instead of being reactive to them or the way you said it, letting them kind of push you around. Yeah. And and so in general, I would like to expand upon that thought. But one of the things that stuck out to me and, and reminded me that that was in the book when you said that was this thought of... Anger being this signal that maybe you, you you should finish the sentence because you wrote it. <laughs> but, there, but anger being a, a signal for something to change within us.
1: Yes. Anger, I noticed, is always about boundaries. Whenever people are feeling angry, there's a boundary that's been crossed somehow. And mm-hmm. how we set boundaries is up to our skill set. But since most of us don't even know what anger is there for, our skill set is goofy, to say the least. Right. Um, And there's also this problem that we're talking about with repressing and expressing. So if you do something that crosses a boundary, you're late and you didn't tell me and I'm waiting at a restaurant for you. um, I should be feeling some anger because there's a boundary of politeness that you've crossed. I don't know what's happened to you. I don't know. Maybe you're stuck in traffic. Maybe you left your phone. Or it could be anything, but I'm just feeling this way. If you come late and don't say anything to me, you know, you're 10, 15 minutes late. You're like, Hey, how are you? And you don't apologize. I'm going to be a little miffed. right? And so if I repress that and I I'm like, Oh, it's great to see you. Right. And I don't say anything about it because I don't have any anger skills. I don't know how to set boundaries then the next, you're going, I'm going to teach you that it's okay to be late and not tell me what's going on. I'm going to mm-hmm. teach you to be an insensitive person. So I'm doing you a disservice. Now, if I come at you and I overexpress my anger, like, why do you think that I have all day to wait around for your ass to get here? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, then I'm breaking your boundaries. I'm hurting you. I'm -hmm. I'm acting with a kind of violence. So both of those are not good ways to work with anger, but it's what most people know. Mm -hmm. Either you yell or you silence yourself. There's no middle ground. And there is a middle ground, which is to set a boundary, right? To let you know what has happened in a way that maintains our relationship. And this is something that you'll see in any close relationship is people don't have anger skills. They can hurt each other for no good reason right? So I can say, I can ask you a question first. It's like, were we supposed to meet at two? Right. And then I give you a chance to say what happened, right? Instead of you are so insensitive. <laughs> sure. This is why, right. Um, to just stay in the moment with anger and set boundaries, making sure that a boundary needs to be set because I may have heard too. And you heard 215. Mm-hmm. I don't know until I connect with you. Anger helps me connect with you. Yeah. Define boundary. There are so many t- different types of boundaries that mm-hmm. there's behavioral ones. You know, um, we we don't, what is it? We don't open our mouths when we're chewing. <laughs> I break that one a lot. <laughs> and um, the other one might be, um, I, uh, You know, this one is a much more intimate one, which is when I am um, when I'm feeling vulnerable with you, it's important that you stop and listen. Mm hmm. Right, instead of saying toughen up or toughen up, Buttercup, that's not what I want to hear. So um, there's you know boundaries around countries. There's boundaries around your house. There's boundaries with your clothing. Um, You know, there's there's touch boundaries. Don't touch my body. That sort of thing. There's all kinds of different boundaries, and they're different for every person. But that's Mm -hmm. one of the things about relationship is we learn each other's boundaries, and we learn how to respect them.
0: Do you think a another term that could be used to define boundaries is expectations. So my expectations of how we will be in relationship with each other. Yes. No matter what the, and then it changes on who the relationship is with a coworker, a spouse, a parent, a friend. And it's, is it stating, I mean, at its core, is it really just stating whether verbally or, or behaviorally or through, questions and, you know, conversation what those expectations are.
1: I think yes, but there's so much trouble in the concept of expectations. A friend of mine, this is kind of harsh, but she said expectations murder experience. I was like, murder. I had to think about that for a while because if I don't share my expectations with you openly, it's an invitation for us to have trouble later. Mm-hmm. Right. I um, mean, you, you've seen that happen where people are like, well, everybody knows that you put the toilet paper over the top. Right. That's my explanation. <laughs> right. you know, people can get in wars about that. They really. Can. <laughs> and it's so hard to like, when you meet a new person to actually get into this conversation, right? Because they would be so, feeling sort of, my God, why don't you just send me some bullet points? This is a lot to take in. But eventually, you know, we do transfer all this information to each other about what works for us and what doesn't. And, you know, in the situation where I was waiting at two and you showed up at two fifteen, that was a place where we were going to work on our relationship. If mm-hmm. I have relationship skills and I know how to set a boundary that's yeah. welcoming to you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that I I I agree and I do think of course in healthy relationships either the expectations are stated or or the relationship skills can verbalize the the boundary or the yeah. need or the or the want or the desire. The other part of me though also knows that sometimes people Can have either unrealistic boundaries or boundaries that are too much in their favor and not in the other person's, or the flip side, boundaries that are too much in other people's favor and and not in their own. So, let's talk about that. What would you say?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking some people set so many boundaries. You're like, you know what? I'm I'm going to go over here.
0: It's not worth trying to figure this out.
1: (laughs) Right. But people who don't set boundaries are so confusing, mm. you know, mm-hmm. or they're so, you know, you're talking about people who set um, boundaries that don't make room for them. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people who are very hyper empathic will sort of disappear in a relationship and you won't know until they're really, really, really angry that you've done something wrong 17 months ago. <laughs> and then you've got to catch up with it. <laughs>
0: very yes that's very true very yeah. true so how can people work on that how can they work on being on having those difficult conversations or, or even if they're not actually that difficult in reality just a you know like the conversation of someone shows up late and you're getting irritated by it yeah. but choosing not to address it like you said is just going to leave it open to happen again in the future so what is a healthy way to for people who are scared to do that, they have reservations for whatever reason to get bold enough to be able to state their expectations.
1: Well, I think we all have experiences of stating our expectations and having someone come for us, right? We've all had the experience of that not working at all. So mm-hmm. in, each que- in each of the emotions, I have a question to ask that focuses on what the emotion came to do. And the questions for anger are what do I value and what needs to be protected and restored? So that question, what do I value can stop that sort of reactive fighter, you know, runaway behavior. And so in terms of, I value that we were going to have lunch together. I value you. I value my time. I value your time. I value our relationship, right? If I have all of those values, um, identified, then I know what to say to you. But if I'm just sort of going on this heat of anger that I've never seen anybody use well, and I don't even know what I'm doing, then I'm going to do one of those. I'm going to explode at you or I'm going to run away. But to stay in the middle and realize that these little conflicts we have in relationships, you know, I, I think you may have seen this in, in therapy, they can open up a whole world A little conflict about being 15 minutes late can start a conversation that can get people to such an amazingly vulnerable and close place. And every time we avoid conflict or or attack people, we're missing out on relationship. Anger is a deeply relational emotion, but you just wouldn't see it if people are just expressing or repressing it. Yeah.
0: What about people who struggle to identify their emotions? So they bury them deep, don't take the time to really sit with it and kind of end up in that reactive cycle. Like how can we, how can we pause and learn to identify emotions better?
1: Well, this is the cool part. There's been a lot of um, research over the last 10 years about emotional vocabulary. And it has been found a number of times that just having a larger emotional vocabulary developing one at any age can give you better emotion regulation skills that's it just get better words and the idea behind that is that if you don't know your emotions and you've been repressing them and they come up it's just a roiling mess of i don't even know what's happening right you can get overwhelmed very quickly but if you can take your emotion I do have emotional vocabulary list in the book, which is very dialed in. Is it soft anger? Is it medium anger? Is it intense? We have all these words for it. If you can just dial in and say, Oh, I'm peeved. Oh, that's anger. Anger's about values. Okay. I'm also, you know what I mean? You can go through and instead of just being this 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 mess of intensity, you can now start identifying where you are in this world. And they're also finding that a larger emotional vocabulary also has cardiac benefit and neurological benefit. And I think with cardiac, especially with anxiety and panic, which can send people to the, to the emergency room thinking they're having a heart attack, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of heart attack victims are actually sent home with Ativan, right? Um, uh, An anti-anxiety medication because it wasn't their heart. It was these emotions were so riled up. If you can say, okay, this is anxiety and I'm feeling it because these many tasks are coming up or this is panic and I'm feeling it because I've got an unfinished, you can calm your whole organism down, which is I think where the cardiac benefits come from. Yeah. so Words, words are magic. Yeah,
0: they really are. They really are. You keep stating that emotion, was it, was it anger shows us what we value or emotions in general? Anger and a
1: number of other ones. Jealousy and envy are huge on what we value and what's important to us.
0: Yeah. Can we walk through some scenarios of how a person might have one of those emotions and then how they could stop and identify the value that's underneath.
1: Yeah. Let's do it.
0: Let's do it. Let's start (laughs) with, let's start with jealousy.
1: Jealousy. um, And it's friend envy. Jealousy Mm -hmm. is the emotion that helps us both identify and maintain our love relationships. The problem here in this world, in this world, in this time, is that we tend not to bring our jealousy out as we're choosing our relationships. We do it after work, right? So we get into relationships because, oh, you're so
0: beautiful.
1: Oh, you're so athletic. Oh, I have these. But you don't really check who the person is in their Mm. deep self. Are they loyal, right? Mm. And a lot of times we get into relationships that – we really haven't checked out appropriately and and jealousy would have helped us do that and we're kind of stuck we've moved in we are now with this person and they are not loyal and our jealousy may come up in a really high level because we're actually in danger right if this relationship goes sour or, or it goes south we're in danger of losing our position in the world um losing our home, losing right? Losing our close relationships. So jealousy is a very important emotion. But because we've been taught to hate it, jealousy and envy are probably the most hated emotions, although everybody hates emotions. But envy is even one of the seven deadly sins in the Catholic tradition, right? So a human emotion is a sin in that tradition. So we tend not to work with jealousy at all the questions for jealousy are what kinds of intimacy do i desire and want to offer because yeah it has to be about what you're giving not just what you're getting and the second is what betrayals must be recognized and healed Hmm. that's jealousy's job is to maintain your love relationships including with your parents and family not just yeah
0: What about, let's talk about how jealousy, let's talk about jealousy in social media. So what about someone who, I'll just talk about me. What if we, you know, I'm on Instagram and I see this girl who just has an amazing body and I get jealous that I don't look like her or can do what she does. Maybe she lives in a house that I wish that I lived in. So how does that? relate to the love relationship, you know, significance and wanting to, to maintain that in this, in that scenario?
1: Well, I think that wanting of what another person has is envy, right? Envy and jealousy are very close. You'll usually feel them both at the same time because I call them the sociological emotions. Their job is to keep us well positioned in our social world, mm-hmm. right? Right well-resourced, um, well-recognized, right? They keep us safe. So I call Instagram Envy Town. <laughs> 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 right? and, and, and as I go through Instagram, I'm like, oh, you're trying to – the thing about – you know, I know a number of people who are very, very active on Instagram and Facebook. I know what their inner lives are like. And I know when they're posting is when they're feeling just shitty about themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Just horrified about themselves. Mm -hmm. And they've spent a long time getting that lighting right. And their their inner lives are a mess. You don't see people taking pictures of themselves on Instagram if their inner life is whole. You just don't see it, right? They don't do selfies, um, so I mean that's that's a part. It's like we're being drawn towards something that is a fully external, externalized, pretend world, when the real internal world is 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 roiling with up, you know, despair. So so yeah, I've got some people I know. The more they're posting, you know, I know that I need to check in with them. Say hey, how you doing? <laughs> what's going on with your mom? You know what I mean? It's like, I know it's a call for help, but it's so funny that we, you know, it's, it's being presented to us. It's like, I'm looking good. You know, look at my waistline, my friends,
0: this is how you make your life work. And uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So how does that pull out? So you, you asked a couple of questions a minute ago, but if I'm, so if I'm sitting there scrolling and get, envy or begin to feel envy, then how am I pulling out what I value that's triggering the envy underneath it?
1: Well, beauty is a huge thing. And you're a younger woman where beauty is still very much a part of your, I'm going to say mate retention value, mate Mm. attraction value and mate retention value. Um, Beauty Mm -hmm. is power beauty's power for women and we don't have a lot of power. (laughs) So, so, I mean, I would say there's even jealousy in there because if there's any part of, you know, the way the body looks that has anything to do with mate attraction or retention, jealousy is there saying, yeah, we want that. We want that. And I think that can be so difficult for people who don't have the option to be attractive. People who have visual, you know, facial disfigurement or something like that. It kind of creates this world that they can't enter. And so, yeah, it's just a fascinating kind of when we see something that we're drawn to with jealousy or envy, it's something we want. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's something we want. We wish we had for ourselves. And um, for me, the, you know, the shift is to say, look at that beautiful woman that is awesome and try not to what would you say to to put myself in her sphere right that's yeah. her it's setting boundaries right i'm setting boundaries saying this is me and i have my own kinds of weird ass beauty and this is her
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i think it's really interesting. So I'm I'm currently in my PhD program and part of my dissertation has to do with self-esteem and domains of self-esteem. Yeah. And so I I have this question because I just spent all this week working on that part and I and so I we we know from many of the research studies that have been done that the higher a person places a domain of self-esteem in something like appearance, the lower their overall self esteem tends to be because there's these things that are external they're not as you know uh stable in a person's life things like that yeah. but then there's the other part of it which you brought up which is this biological part like the mating mate retention for a woman and, and different things like that. It, it's kind of a different mechanism in us, but there's this part of us that wants certain things because biologically, that's a little bit of how we're wired. And so I don't, I don't know that I have a question. I think it's just more of a, a, something I'm noticing in this conversation is, so yes, like there are these things that are organically going to come up within us that may not also be the bet, even though we're, you know, evolutionarily or whatever, biologically primed to think or want those things, it doesn't necessarily mean it's what's best or healthy for us to focus on in the long term. Yeah. Yeah. I know so many
1: beautiful people who feel so empty inside mm-hmm. um, because it is hard. To, I mean, like it's hard to be beautiful, Um, (laughs) but it is because people have so many expectations of you, and Mm -hmm. um, I know, uh, and to be wanted all the time for how you look, is is very painful because you want to say, hey, I'm a I'm a human being in here. Um, I was thinking as you were talking about self esteem, how important it is that your shame is um in a place that you want or need it to be because if your shame is based on the controlling messages of others then your self-esteem is going to have a hell of a time arising I look at a relationship between shame and contentment and these two emotions are buddies but shame holds you to the ethics and values that you find important that you've agreed to Mm -hmm. and contentment helps you notice when you've lived up to your values Right. If your shame is too high, you know, with too many, you know, you're not perfect enough, you're not tall enough, you're not smart enough, blah, blah, blah. Your contentment cannot rise because you haven't lived up to these horrible, miserable messages. But there's that other part where if your shame is too low and your contentment is high, inflated, that's bullying and narcissism. So having shame and contentment come into a balance with each other to be, you know, um, two sides of a scale is so important. So when people don't feel a lot of contentment or a good self-image, they look at things to try to make themselves feel happier about themselves rather than looking at what's pulling them down. And I talk about shame. Shame's job is to hold you to the morals and values you've agreed to. So the work with shame is to understand what you've agreed to. Is it livable? Like, if one of my morals and values is you need to floss your teeth, right? I can, and if it's getting to be 11 o'clock and I'm still fooling around on the internet, right? My shame's like, excuse me, it's flossing time and I'll go and do it. And my like contentment will say, okay, nicely done, but you could have done this at 10, right? But what if one of my shaming messages that I picked up somewhere is no one will ever love you until you're perfect, right? In the previous flossing, the shame just said, hey, go floss, and I did. In this one, if someone, if some poor soul comes to love me, my shame is going to go an absolute bender. It is going to come for me. It's going to wake me up in the middle of the night, right? My shame is going to be feeling like an abusive entity, but it's just doing the exact same thing it did when it asked me to floss. It's holding me to this value. So we have a practice for these kinds of shitty, terrible, shaming messages called burning contracts. And it's about really deciding what morals and ethics am I going to live by? And are they livable? Are they achievable? Are they functional? If they're not, they got to (laughs) go. You got to go. (laughs) So, yeah. So if you're living under horrific shaming messages, your self esteem is never going to be able to arise because you're not living up to these gruesome messages. And I think a lot of people turn and they blame shame. They'd be like, shame is the worst emotion ever. You should never feel it. I was like, Mm -hmm. no, because we know what shamelessness is. We have a word called shameless and it's not a good word, right? Shamelessness is narcissism. Shamelessness is bullying right? So we've got to have a balance there.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the the last questions I want to ask you is about anxiety, worry, and confusion. So can you talk a little bit about those emotions? Because anxiety and worry are some I feel very often. So I have to ask you about them. But then in that next chapter, you talk about how confusion can be a mask for them.
1: Yeah. Anxiety and worry, I look at I wrote a book um, a couple of years ago called embracing anxiety. And as I was doing research for it, I just asked everybody what's anxiety and what they were describing was panic. And the difference between anxiety and panic is that panic saves your life with that four behaviors, fight, flee, freeze, flock to safety. Anxiety is about getting you ready for the future. Anxiety helps Mm -hmm. you complete your tasks and hit your deadlines. And it, is the emotion of motivation. Now, for many people, anxiety and panic are are fused together. Mm -hmm. And the way to tell if your anxiety has panic in it is if you feel any sense of dread or danger. Then, So looking at these, like these are two different emotions. They have two different jobs, but why have they come together in this moment? And it could be you've got some tasks or deadlines coming up, that would really affect your social standing at work right if you don't hit that deadline you know it could be it could be a you're walking the plank at work right it it could be that there is danger to your life but for a lot of people these two emotions coming together become sort of habitual right and so panic isn't a bad emotion it's be it's beautiful but um If you find yourself looking to the future and feeling because anxiety is a future emotion. If you find yourself looking to the future and feeling mostly dread or danger, that's important to check it out. Is there dread or danger there? Is there something dangerous coming up or is there a danger to your social standing or your job or, you know, your, your self image if you don't produce? Um, So that's anxiety and worry and i would say th- i would say worry is a lot of times there's dread and danger and worry, right so it's probably panic is they're trying to help um confusion is a wonderful emotion that comes up when there's too much coming at you too mm-hmm. many decisions to make too much going on and you it's sort of an enforced rest um it's also a time the the questions for, for confusion are how can I welcome not knowing and not doing and as you may know we don't have room for people who don't know you have to know you have to know right now and decide right now you have to do and do and do and do and do and don't get rest you'll sleep when you're dead right so we are very very knowy doo-y people right now and confusion comes in to just stop that and get you to rest and to not know i think is very frightening for people to not know what decision to make what yeah. so confusion can be a hard emotion to be with because it's it's kind of going against our modern abusive world
0: yes yeah. this, this makes all the sense in the world to me i mean when i read it i was like what? but it makes all the sense because i so chapter 2 of of a dissertation is called the literature review and so i was doing the self esteem part and for and i had a lot of stuff in there but i knew it wasn't organized well and then my chair gave me back the edits and i knew i had to redo it and i kept saying i'm so confused yeah. like i feel like i cannot even think about this and every time i tried to think about it It was like, I hit a wall brain fog. I, there was no clarity around it, but I did have a lot of anxiety about, I have to get this done. I, you know, by this time. And if it's not, then, you know, all of these things associated with panic. And so it's so fascinating to me that confusion is kind of like the body's survival response to, to being overwhelmed by it. And maybe, I should listen to it as opposed to trying to just push through and push harder. That's really fascinating.
1: Yeah, I found when I was writing one of the books, I got completely confused. And I just, I I was avoiding writing. It was probably a couple of days of it. And finally, I just went to the, I was doing all kinds of tasks that were not related to the thing I was confused about, right? I was still active because that's one thing. And I went and just lay down on the couch and I was like, I'm confused. And I sort of let everything float around and I was there, didn't read. Mm-hmm. I did nothing. I knew nothing. And I was there for about five minutes and I went, oh, shit, chapter two. There's something wrong in chapter two. But I was so busy trying to, f- I know when you're doing a dissertation, you're just so busy trying to finish it. Like you in yes. a train of finishing a di- you cannot stop. And I stopped and I realized, oh my God, there was a fatal flaw in chapter two that was like my anxiety could see it coming up, right? And the confusion was trying to stop me and say, stop it. You need to go back to not knowing and wait for the information to come. Like, nobody wants to know that there's a fatal flaw in chapter two, but my confusion knew.
0: That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I fixed it. Yay.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. Good, good, good for you, Carla. <laughs> Chapter two. That's great. <laughs> for being sensitive to it and listening. Well, Carla, I have loved this conversation. Where can people find you? Where can they get the book, The Language of Emotions? It's coming out this month, June 2023. Tell us yeah. more about that. Well, they
1: can find me at my website, carlamclaren.com. And there is a free emotional vocabulary list there that is now in eight languages because people keep coming and saying, do you want it in uh, Polish? I'm like, yes, I do. So it's there. If you'd like to start developing your emotional vocabulary, which is magic. Um, I'm also at empathyacademy.org, which is my online learning site. And you can come every month and take workshops or courses and, Get with your emotions.
0: I love it. That's fantastic work. Well, thank you so much for our conversation today, Carla. I know that the listeners are going to absolutely love it as much and hopefully as much as I did.
1: Thank you so much, Kimberly.
0: Here are my three key takeaways of how this conversation can help us to become the best that we can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. First, I love thinking about emotions as something to have a relationship with and not something to just let us be pushed around by. Not something to be reactive toward, but something to be proactive in understanding and helping them guide our decisions and and why we feel the way that we feel. So even just that change in perspective, I hope you take that into your day-to-day or your week this week. And when you begin to feel anger, anxiety, envy, whatever it might be, that instead of reacting to it, you take a step back and you take a deep breath and you ask yourself, what is this emotion telling me? And maybe what is this emotion telling me about something that I value? That's my first takeaway for you. My second one is I also love the the statement, the encouragement to lovingly state our expectations. This is something that can be very difficult to do in a variety of circumstances, in a work relationship, in a marriage relationship, even with kids, probably with kids, we're the most likely to state our expectations. But a question I would have is, are you doing it in such a way that is loving And is helpful to the continuation of the relationship and that is my big takeaway from that conversation we we mentioned it in passing but really thinking about the boundaries or the expectations being something that helps to make the relationship better not just something that we're doing because we're wanting to get what we want or we're wanting to kowtow to what someone else wants but what can make the relationship long, like the long, thinking about the longevity and health span of the relationship as, we, as I typically think about longevity and health span for myself. It's important to think about that for our relationships as well. My third key takeaway for this episode is remembering and realizing that maybe some of our values, like if we place a lot of our value in appearance or in financial success, they may actually be leading us to not... Have the best quality of life overall, and this relates to an episode that I did about self-esteem and diving into the domains of self-esteem that I would encourage you to go and listen to. We'll link it to, into the show notes as well because when we put our value in those things, it actually can be detrimental to our overall self-esteem, our health, our relationships, and several other things over time. And so, balancing that of what do I value that's leading to me leading me to have some of these emotions I have, and maybe should I think about changing the things that I value, which is a much deeper conversation. Maybe we'll dive into on a future episode. If you love today's episode, please leave a review and share it with a friend. That's the best way to support this podcast until next week. Stay strong.